are listening to Cover Stories, a deep dive into the stories behind iconic album art with Adam Charlie O. In 1890, Lam Van Duc was born to a family of seven children in Vietnam. At the age of seven, he left his family to study Buddhism. On June 11, 1963, the 73-year-old monk, now known as Thich Quang Duc, sat calmly in an intersection in Saigon, South Vietnam, as a Buddhist monk poured five gallons of gasoline on Duc's head. AP photographer Malcolm Brown had been tipped the day before that something important was going to happen at this location. Brown said, I realized at that moment exactly what was happening, and he started snapping pictures as fast as he could. No one had noticed the monk had been holding a match in his hand. He finished his prayer, and then he lit the match, dropped it onto his robes, and was instantly immolated. That fire raged against the machine of President No Din Diem. Brown's photos were smuggled out of the country on a plane in a roll of film. By morning, Thich Quang Duc's burning body would be on the cover of papers around the world. On November 3, 1992, the photo of Thich Quang Duc's flaming body graced the cover of Rage Against the Machine's eponymous debut album. The band wanted an image that would convey the multitude of emotions the album delivered. Something that said, Fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. They chose an album cover that was as equally in your face as their energetic music. The picture they chose was a cropped version of Malcolm Brown's photograph of a singular event of a peaceful soul raging against the machine of ignorance and persecution. It would do the trick, ultimately cementing the album as one of the most impactful debut albums ever released. Rage, the band, didn't stop there with their political message either. Their liner notes included a thanks for inspiration section that read like a 60s, 70s who's who in protest, including provisional IRA hunger striker Bobby Sands and Black Panther Party founder Huey P. Newton, as well as DC hardcore vets Ian and Alex McKay. The band started their tradition of referring to themselves as guilty parties with this album. Famously, they signaled their dedication to their punk roots by including the statement, No samples, keyboards, or synthesizers were used in the making of this record. This was found at the end of the sleeve notes. The lyrics for each song were printed in the album booklet, with the exception of those for Killing in the Name, which were omitted. That may have been because of the 16 uses of fuck and one motherfucker. At the time of release of his photo, Brown was working as an Associated Press correspondent. The photograph remains as shocking today as it was back in the 60s, and that is indicative of its power. Brown's photo earned him the World Press Photo of the Year Award. Rage felt the image perfectly captured their spirit and message. Always rage against the machine. And the machine raged back. The parental advisory sticker, which read parental advisory explicit lyrics, so prominently displayed in the lower left corner of the cover, was placed there as a result of the efforts of Tipper Gore and the Washington Wives. 
Their Conservative Parents Music Resource Center, established in 1985, was a group as antithetical to Rage's message as one could find. To understand Rage's rage, we have to understand the moment. Dick Kwong Duck's story begins in the city of Hugh on May 8, 1963. It was Fat Dan, the birthday of Gautama Buddha, and more than 500 people had taken to the streets, waving Buddha's flags and celebrating. This religious display was a crime in Vietnam. President Ngo Dinh Diem, a Roman Catholic and staunch anti-communist who enjoyed the support of the United States, sent in the police who opened fire on the crowd. Grenades were thrown and vehicles were driven into the crowd. By the time the crowd had dispersed, nine were dead. After the massacre, Buddhists issued a list of five demands that called for religious equality and justice for the dead. Duk knew he had to rage against this machine. Duk's death was a planned event. It was not the spontaneous act of martyrdom that Brown's photograph might seem to portray. Here's how the photo came about. On June 10th, Malcolm Brown, the Saigon Bureau Chief for the Associated Press, got word that something important was going to happen outside the Cambodian embassy. On June 11, 1963, Brown met Thich Quang Duc, a Buddhist monk who had spent three years living in total isolation as a holy hermit in the mountains of Vietnam. Brown followed him and a procession of 350 monks and nuns into the center of Saigon, where Duc sat down on a simple cushion in the middle of a busy intersection. There was a five-gallon can of gas in the blue car in which Duke was transported. He sat cross-legged, apparently in deep meditation. One of the monks retrieved the can of gas and poured every drop over Duke's head while he remained the picture of serenity as he rotated the prayer beads around his neck and chanted a prayer. The crowd began to panic as a monk yelled into a microphone, a Buddhist priest burns himself to death. A Buddhist priest becomes a martyr. As Duke burst into flame, the fire department was trying to get to him. Monks laid down in front of their trucks, risking their lives to keep them from saving Thich Quang Duc's. This was a carefully planned rage. Duke himself is the only person who remained calm. A witness recalled, he never moved a muscle, never uttered a sound, even as his body burned for ten minutes before he finally collapsed. Brown said, I don't know exactly when he died. He never yelled out in pain. When the flames died away, the monks covered Duke's body with yellow robes, placed it in a wooden casket, and carried it back to the pagoda, where his remains were ironically cremated. The burning monk photo would change the course of history. President Diem had planned to do little in response, but the U.S. ambassador to Vietnam pressured Diem to meet the Buddhist demands. Diem seemed to bow to American pressure, but it was widely believed that he, that he had no plans to actually deal with the Buddhist crisis. President Diem's days were numbered. Vietnamese nationalists, led by General Dong Van Min started plotting to overthrow him, and the United States backed them up. 
the CIA said they wouldn't get in his way. On November 1st, 1963, Min and his co-conspirators attacked and assassinated Diem. With a single match, Duk had helped topple a government. His death was more than a symbol. According to one of Kennedy's advisors, it was the spark that set in motion a series of crises that ended up bringing America into the Vietnam War. Ironically, Duke was not so much raging against the machine, as I may have led you to believe, so much as he was performing the Lotus Sutra by immolating himself, so that he could free Vietnamese Buddhists from their suffering. Coincidentally, Rage Against the Machine was released on November 3, 1992, the same day as the 1992 United States presidential election. I am now the age of the burning monk, and the machine has ground me down. My own rage is a distant memory, and rage against the machine was mostly an echo of my own past. We had the Vietnam War, automation replacing jobs, the atomic bomb, the environmental movement, the feminist movement. What did other generations have to rage against that could match that? And this album cover told me in no uncertain terms that there is every bit as much to rage against today, even if I do not understand it so viscerally, because it was not the machine that crushed and ground me and my generation. The flames on this album cover are real, present, and eternal. Guitarist Tom Morello said, Killing in the Name is the most important song on the record. It's become one of the rebel rock anthems for people who are on the front line trying to change the world. Frederick Douglass, a freed slave who became an abolitionist, in his autobiography wrote, The moment I became free was not when I was physically released from my chains. The moment I became free was when Master said yes and I said no. And that's what the song is about. It's about standing up to illegitimate authority wherever it rears its head. Sometimes that might be parental or it might be your school or your place of work, or in your government. That fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, resounds on a lot of levels. Let's hit the pause button and chat a bit. No news picture in history, John F. Kennedy once said, has generated so much emotion around the world as that one. Yeah, yeah. Had you read me that quote, I'd have been hard-pressed to tell you what he was referring to, because sadly, his assassination, just a few short months later, would produce some equally iconic images. Um, would you have known what he was referring to? Uh, at the time, I was probably about 12 or 13, so yeah. I would have been vaguely aware. Uh, you know, that, that photo does have a, a place in my memory, so even at that age, it... it, it um, imprinted itself i would imagine but I, so. I don't know you know yeah wasn't that presidential at the time. yeah yeah it's, it's it's interesting but um you know if if you haven't already read the you know the the, which, the link you just downloaded we're uh, talking about rage against the machines classic 1992 self-titled debut album um which is timely you know uh aside from just celebrating 30 years not terribly long ago the band just announced that they are unlikely to ever play or tour again Ooh. So sort Not of a, break hearts. Yeah, after their reunion run a couple of years back, uh, that perpetual will they or won't they has mm -hmm. been answered. 
But they always seem to arrive at a time of uh, national division and dire political need, which <laughs> which which is practically any time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Especially in the modern era, that could be that's any right, year. Yeah. And you'd be like, wow, yeah. you know, the bat signal came at just the right time. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so music is what radicalized me. There's no two ways about it. I'd love to tell you that it was countless books, endless theory, and life experience that got me on my way, but that would be dishonest. Mm. You know, I think my political awakening was a bit more Trojan horse, if you will. Uh, nestled somewhere between the Zeppelin-sized riff, the deep low-end funk of the rhythm section, and the fiery staccato hip-hop slam poetry of Zach De La Roca, the lyrics were a gateway. And as you said really well, the liner notes were damn near a mission statement. Yeah. You know, um, so it also, you know, is there anything more attractive to a 12 year old than the universally applicable? Fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. What was the fuck you? I won't do what you tell me of your youth. Would you say if there was Ooh, one wow, that sticks wow. out? That's, in a, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I might, we may have to hit the pause button for that, but no, I, I'm not coming up with anything because that just wasn't. Anywhere on my radar. Well, you know, it's funny. I was going to do what you tell me. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But, you know, the one that stuck out to me, uh, obviously I didn't live through this, but what uh, people try and put us down. Yeah. Talking about my generation. So this was uh, the far more uh, left-leaning 90s version. And much more direct. (laughs) Yeah. There's a a sticker on on the cover of this one. But (laughs) So as someone that parented me through this era, can you spot the band's influence? Yeah, I, I think so. And I was thinking, damn it, I should have listened to those parental advisories. I, I knew there was going to be trouble if we let that album come into the house. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. Uh, it's just wild to think back and realize this was all over terrestrial radio, MTV, and the newsstand. It's just, it's neat to think how accessible this was. Yeah. You know, it really got some people started. Um, but before we had Rage Against the Machine, we had Inside Out. I'm not sure if it's a band that you came across you in any of your research. No, I don't know. My more, you know, my punk leanings uh, brought me there first. So Orange County Youth Crew Band um, that only have about 15 minutes of recorded music in the form of an EP from 1990, No Spiritual Surrender, which is absolutely essential and somehow really influential still in the punk scene. Um but De La Roca continued to explore and dabble in this Run DMC meets Bad Brains meets Led Zeppelin that begat Rage Against the Machine. So let's dive into the cover All of right. that okay. debut album yeah. itself. Let's take a dive. So obviously, I knew nothing about self, self-immolation as either a protest or, you know, a Buddhist religious rite when I got my hands on this album. Yeah. Is, you yeah. Know. So granted, I could have asked you, but... Then I was risking having mom glance at the <laughs> lyric sheet, and that was not going to happen. Did you recognize it as a Buddhist monk? Did, was that even clear? No, not at the no, time. Yeah, not I at the think... time. You know, and I think some years hence, I really dove back, especially as the band got more explicitly political. You know, Did you think it was a real photo? No, I didn't. I okay. thought this was, um, wow, they really came up with something wild yeah, for this, yeah. you know, to match the incendiary feel of the yeah. songs. But no, I had no idea, and I certainly didn't think it was real. And if it, if I had known it to be real, there's no way they'd be allowed to put this on the cover. So you know, there was there was a lot going on, but certainly I never considered it to be what it turned out to be. Um, you know, we could talk at length about the act itself, um, but again, I didn't know thing one about this image when I first saw it. 
And apologies in advance for my mid-Atlantic butchering here, but I would imagine this image of Tuk Quang Duk is one that you were familiar with. You already said, yeah, yeah, uh, reference yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, maybe less so at the at the initial because of my age, but mm-hmm. but something that you know through high school and through college became, a, you know, it was a it was an emblem. Yeah, I think, and, for for a generation. Well, and I was wondering, you know. Call, call it whatever you want, but, you know, there was a that fiery spirit of protest and activism in the 60s, you know, in the hippie era and all that. Was this already in some ways just, like you said, it was emblematic of an era, but it's so, in my mind, so tied to the Vietnam era and sure. the Vietnam War. Sure. And, you know, you see this and you think, okay, this was the, the, the Vietnamese president who has the support of the United States. Ergo, yeah. this is... This is the kind of thing that the United States is is supporting or causing or yeah, saying, yeah. 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 So you can imagine this was a pretty effective flashpoint for my generation. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, this may be reductionist, certainly for someone that didn't live through the era, but the burning monk, so to speak, ultimately helped set off a chain of events that led to the U.S. involvement. In uh, that, that's what one of, one of Kennedy's advisors said. That's probably a bit oversimplified. Yeah, I'd imagine but, so. But, but uh, I I think it's uh, you know. These were people who knew, and this really kind of, well, it, it brought Vietnam Vietnam to the front pages. Uh, you know, we had been supporting DM. And, well, and that's another one of my questions. Sorry to cut you off, but how many people you reckon hadn't even heard of Vietnam before this? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, again, because of my age. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I wasn't really uh, internationally aware at the time. You know, you're 12 or 13, you're just playing wall ball and going yeah. to school. Um but certainly, you know, there were people, uh, you know, who were, who were uh, you know, the contemporaries of the president. And, and I don't know that I would say that college folks, young people in, in large numbers were aware. It was still yeah. kind of that uh, uh, soda fountain kind of generation image oh, of, which, of, yeah, of, yeah, of, yeah, the of teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know. It's a good question. But, uh, you know, if, I think it's interesting just to, to frame it a little bit, especially for, again, someone that wasn't from the era. But let's talk Malcolm Brown. Yeah. So yeah. photographer Malcolm Brown, we're not talking about Andy Warhol here. We're not talking about someone taking the picture of the Beatles walking right. across Abbey Road. This is not someone who is thinking about what a cool image this will make for a rock band's <laughs> album someday. You know, this is photojournalism at its most primal and extreme. Absolutely. Right? So it's very Absolutely. different, uh, just a very different way to go about an album cover story here. But I can't begin to imagine what he thought the quote unquote big plan, big things happening on June 11th, 1963 was. Can you even imagine? No, that? no, I can't. And I can't imagine him showing up and talking to this guy. Yes. As Mere if, minutes or yeah, hours before. Yeah, who knows? That this guy was so serene that yeah. he could, you know, discuss, uh, you know, what was going on, you know, demonstration and all that sort of thing. Wow, yeah. that's just, that's mind-blowing. Thinking Absolutely that you may have just blowing. been, yeah, he may have just been joining for a march. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah. that, that turned out a little differently. So uh, is he responsible for any other iconic photos? No, there were many from Vietnam. One, you, yeah. I know you've seen where it had a, a soldier executing a person, shooting them in the head. I certainly know that one and, very you know, well. And there, there are others, you know. Uh, soldiers and and helicopters in the background and all sorts of things that you know, wow. uh, you know if you you know that there's there's enough to fill several life magazines of 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 really iconic images from yeah. Vietnam but I don't know 
Uh, I, I really don't know his work beyond this. Yeah, it's interesting. I dug in a bit, you know, in, in 1964, uh, he did win the Pulitzer yeah. for his coverage of the Vietnam War and overthrow of the DM regime. But it's just, it's wild. Like you said, him meeting Duke just what I'm imagining is moments before he took his own life in what I can only call an act of martyrdom, just shocking to even think about, yeah. you know, just a harrowing thought. But again, this wasn't created to accompany any other piece of art and certainly not art, you know, some 30 years afterwards, yeah. but few marriages have worked as well as this one. You know, I don't know what your thoughts were when you pressed play on this album the first time. Uh, I was really surprised. I I, uh, I liked it more than I thought. Did you? I would, yeah. And But I think it was good because there was some time travel, you know, even in looking in this photograph. And, okay. And, and you know, as, as I was saying in, in telling the story, you know, you, you get kind of pompous. Uh, you know, well, we had all these things yeah. to rage about. Of well, course. What do you got? You know, but, <laughs> but that just really locked it in and, and brought it home to me that this just was timeless. You know, this... Yeah. This this photo makes it timeless. The the rage makes it timeless. So I was it was easier for me to tap into the energy. Okay, you I know, like and that. That, that's that's a that's a little bit of magic because I think you know in your generation, your contemporaries, it's it's easier to do to tap into somebody else's uh, emotional oh understand rage is, yeah. is a little bit harder to do. But uh, I think they did a really nice job of of conveying that. So um, yeah, and and I think you know you touched on this some in your research in the story, but. One of the things I find so intriguing, you know, you talked about the serenity with which the priest planned and executed his final yeah, act. I yeah, mean, it was yeah. full of such grace and meditative clarity. Rage Against the Machine would uh, have none of that. They're, they're content with just kicking in the door and smashing everything. Mm -hmm. But it somehow and just this works. photo did. The, the <laughs> well, photo did, did kick right. in the door. Globally, it kicked in the door. Interesting. And, it, and it smashed everything. I think it said, you know, this is out of control. Things are are really out of control here, and something something important is going to happen in this country yeah. in the years to come. And you're right. I think it's interesting because you know the burning monk wouldn't have been as impactful had it been a rash, instantaneous decision that was, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. wasn't so wasn't so calm and wasn't yeah. so. But he had his his colleagues, I suppose. You know, the monks and the nuns blocking the fire department. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, this was something that was really carefully thought through. Even their ability to see their, you know, see their fellow monk mm -hmm. in that state and know that you need to let it, let it keep burning. Yeah. Because that's the only way the fire is going to continue to burn. Is that's right. Letting him burn as intense as that sounds. But something that I love also just surrounding this album, you know, it's, an album that all three of your sons have loved at various times, but I like that the band's quick to point out that they use nothing other than three organic instruments on the record. Because if you listen to all of their discography, and certainly the way Tom Morello plays guitar, you would think otherwise. I mean, he's wildly inventive, often compared to... Yeah, Hendrix. Hendrix. Yeah. In just his intuitive way of understanding an instrument, in a completely different way than anyone else that's yeah, ever picked yeah. it up. Um, you know, so he kind of really married that to his big Jimmy Page riffs, and I just thought it was really cool. But one thing I found interesting, too, is that they didn't change anything about this stark image. You know, they, they didn't colorize it. I know we came across some colorized versions of the image. They certainly didn't manipulate it other than cropping it, you yeah. know, to make yeah. it more immediate. Zoom, zoom in, yeah. yeah. More intense. 
Um, but if you've never seen the image, obviously, we certainly recommend that you, you, dive, Absolutely. you dive fully in on that one. Absolutely. But, you know, with just minor touches, you know, obviously they have the sticker, you know, the, the Tipper Gore influence sticker at the bottom left. Washington Wives. You can't run away from that one. But they also first introduce here their typewriter font. Uh, it makes it feel like a telegram. You know, a letter bomb, a pipe bomb, a secret message. Yeah, that was a good test between yeah, actors yeah, that's a good on take. the land, you know. I, I overlooked that. Yeah. It's just, it's neat. You know, it just has a very of the era mm-hmm. intensity to it as yeah, well. Yeah, and it also says Malcolm Brown, too. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. A, the yeah. AP, you that's, know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's, it's just neat. And I think the album itself is incredible. Um, also neat because it includes a guest appearance. Uh by friend of the band, Maynard James Keenan, uh, later of Tool, who bears mentioning because I have a feeling we may hear that name again at some that's point in the future. Possibility. So I'll leave you with his words on my favorite and sixth track on the album, Know Your Enemy. Time has come to See you next time. <laughs>